You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So, uh, welcome everybody to uh, uh, Five fat, Phenomenal Friendships. I keep on wanting to call it Five Fabulous Friendships. I feel like that rolls off the tongue better, but uh, Hazan took fabulous for the five fabulous or four fabulous females in the Bible. So, um, so uh, what we've been doing over the past uh, couple weeks is um, uh, somewhat twofold. The first is... Um, to, uh, to sort of frame a conversation around Jewish views of friendship and relationship through um, so a handful of uh, uh, um, assorted texts uh, that ad- address issues, give wisdom and guidance uh, to navigating relationships, right? give explicit wisdom and guidance toward navigating relationship. And then to use that as sort of a prism um, through which we can view um, stories about friendship and relationships in uh, in in Jewish literature. So, um, just for no reason other than this, how it turned out and what I happen to be interested in in, in any given week, um, the first two and now this uh, uh, stories that were that we've been looking at come from the Babylonian Talmud. Um, next week, uh, Gary Goldberg is going to be teaching on my behalf, um, and he's going to be teaching uh, a a text from the Bible, and then the following week, um, I will also probably be doing a text from the from the Bible. Um, so we're not going in chronological order necessarily, just, you know, whatever happens to uh, move me uh, or move us in, in a given week. And there's, you know, the truth is, uh, the I mean, the Bible deals a lot with relationships, um, but, uh, but, but really, um, you know, uh, doesn't spend a lot of time um, uh, depicting model friendships or model marriages, model relationships. Oftentimes, um, the relationships that are depicted in the Bible um, are good examples of what not to do in a relationship. Um, or if there are friendships, you know, they might be mentioned, you know, in passing or something like that. Um, you know, I think, I mean, and a good example is, you know, Abraham and Sarah. Um, a lot is said about Abraham and Sarah, but I'm not sure if there's like a um, a really good text I can point to that, that can show the, the you know, um, the contours of their uh, interpersonal relationship and what that might teach us for our relationship. Although I can point to some things in the relationship that might be examples of what not to do in a relationship. Um, uh, the Talmud, on the other hand, has uh, more of those kind of uh, texts, more of those kind of stories. The, the Talmud, in, in some ways, is a much more relational document uh, than the Bible. The, Bible fo- the, the main relationship that the Bible focuses on is the relationship between God and the Jewish people. Um, or, or God and individual Jewish people. That, that's the, really the relationship that the Bible talks about. Um, not so the Talmud. The Talmud is really much more about uh, human interaction and human relationships. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so that's uh, um, on display in, you know, the, the overarching theme and activity of the Talmud, which is legal debate. And, and uh, the Talmud is, is really all about conversation between people about legal issues. Uh, and some moral issues and things like that. Um, and then it sort of sometimes zooms out to, to talk, uh, to, to give stories or examples about how those relationships actually played out in real life. So I like the, some of the stories in the Talmud. Um, can, yeah. can I stop you for sure. a minute? I don't know everybody here. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> well, sure. So why don't we go around the room? This is a class on relationships. I mean, I so, people, but I don't know everybody. Um, a class on relationships. Why don't we go around? Uh, I'll start. I'm Rabbi Knopf. And I'm Nancy Walter. We know you too. Yeah. Rick Chapel. Yeah. Dudley. Okay, Helene Bratch. Helene Gertz Bratch. I don't know. Monica Kane. Monica Kane. Okay. I'm sorry. I no, just didn't know. Please, I'm glad you did. Thank you. And there's lots of very good food out there, and you all should have it. Yeah. It's going to go to waste. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of food. And feel free, feel free to, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're hungry, if you're. If you're hungry or bored as we're talking or need to stretch the legs, whatever, go grab a bagel. There's plenty of bagels. Um, good bagel. Um, I, I appreciate the, uh, um, the um, 
extreme vote of uh, 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 confidence uh, that, uh, that we have in the amount of food that is outside. But, um, okay, so uh, just to just to step back for a bit and talk about the frame that we use. We spent a little bit of time, you know, uh, exploring some of these texts. Uh, together last time uh, and the time before that, um, but I just want to uh, point out some of the themes that we've uh, noted in in the um, list of texts. And you can kind of have this, you know, in uh, on, for one eye and then have the other eye on uh, on on this text. Um, so uh, so oh sorry, Nancy. Um, so both in terms of what this uh, collection of texts that you have uh, says and um, in terms of some of the texts, some of the examples of friendship that we've looked at in previous sessions, I think that there are some general themes that, that we can um, acknowledge. Um, the first is that, um, that the Jewish tradition really views friendship and relationships um, through the prism of, um, of, of, of teaching and study. Um, uh, that's that that may not be surprising because Judaism is a very you know, sort of uh, um, intellectual tradition, um, and you know puts a high emphasis on on study and wrestling with uh, with with Torah and uh, and and all that sort of stuff. Um, but but nevertheless, I mean, you can see it in this first text from uh, from the Mishnah um, on the. Um, the page that I have to my right, um, uh, the one that doesn't say Rabbi Yochanan Reish Lakish, the, the one from the um, Mishnah says, uh, um, uh, "Get yourself a teacher, acquire a companion." Right, and and you know, in some ways, those are seen as really parallel things. They might even be the same person. Oftentimes, um, the way um, ancient poetry works uh, is that um, it uh, will you know say the same thing. Twice in slightly uh, different language. Um, it's throughout, you know, like that throughout the Bible. It may not be like that here, but nevertheless, the fact that they're kind of listed in the same breath um, uh, hits at this idea um, that, uh, that that one of the essences of relationship and friendship in the Jewish tradition is that there's a refining quality uh, to it. Um, friends should push each other uh, to grow and to learn and to be better people. Um, you know, friendship is not some sort of like, a, um, you know, blasé, you know, let's, let's hang out and pass the time together sort of thing. There's a real, um, deep dimension of, uh, of, of personal growth to it. Um, which is why, uh, on some level, the next, uh, statement, Nitai, the Arbilite used to say, keep far from a bad neighbor and do not associate with a wicked person. In other words, because there's a presumption that who we associate with, who we're close with, have an influence on us for good or for ill. Um, and so, you know, so uh, there's a now uh, the the flip of that, as we discussed um, a, a couple of weeks ago, and even last week, on some level, we were talking about Rabbi Akiva and Rachel, and before that, we were talking about Alicia um, and Rabbi Mayer. Um, that you know, the the um, the counter argument, in a way, to that is. Um, if uh, if friendship, in a way, is about um, uh, refining oneself and helping to refine another person, um, or allowing oneself to be refined by another person, uh, then um, then you can't really follow Nitai the Arbalite's um, uh, advice, or at least not totally, um, because first of all, there's no perfect person, um, and second, you know, if you only associate with with really righteous people, then how is there a possibility for uh, for you to impact them toward their growth? Maybe they can impact you toward your growth, but why would they hang out with you? Because you're not a righteous person, right? So, um, so there's a, a tension there. Um, uh, there's there's another dimension of uh, that we've explored, and you can see in some of these texts about um, the, uh, uh, the the necessity of relationship, right? So um, so even though it's hard to be a, a, a good and true friend, um, we require good and true friendship, and other people require good and true friendship, uh, and that. Um, uh, friendship requires a tremendous amount of uh, patience and resilience. Um, a, a desire, right? Like the um, some of the last statements on the page say, um, you know, friendship requires loyalty, right? Which means even when the going gets tough, um, even when it's hard to be a good friend, um, even when there are pressures against you being a good friend, you remain a good friend. Um, 
and uh, and and uh, that uh, an old friend should not be exchanged, right? So you know there 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 may obviously be circumstances in which um, you need to end a relationship and end a friendship, um, but one should not do so lightly. And uh, and the example of Rabbi Meir and Alicia that we talked about in our first week um, really hits at um, the um, the um, the importance, the power uh, um, of the bonds of friendship that uh, that. Um, ought to compel one uh, to uh, to remain loyal to a friend even in the most uh, difficult of circumstances. Um, so those are some of the frames that we uh, had for uh, discussing friendship. Now I want to look at one uh, text from the Talmud and, and open it up for conversation. Um, so before we begin uh, looking at that text, any any comments or questions uh, about that introduction? Well, I think it's let you know in one of the things that you've said that having a friend or being a friend is work, you know. It's, yeah. And not necessarily, I don't mean work in a negative way, but but you have to keep at it or it, or it disappears. And I think right. that that's inherent in some of that that you just discussed. Yeah, and it's it's even maybe more so when you look at the Hebrew of it, right? Because the Hebrew is aselcharav uknelcharaver, right? Aselcharav. It's translated in English as "get yourself a teacher," which sounds sort of blasé. But uh, in the Hebrew, it's, it's make for yourself a, a, a rabbi. Right? So there's an active dimension to it, right? Um, friendship doesn't just happen. I mean, might just happen. But uh, uh, for most of us, requires uh, work, right? It's true. Friendships, true. Relationships requires work. right? You have to uh, you have to acquire um, a, a friend, right? It's it's active, right? Um, it has the language of, of purchase. It 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 it, call, it requires some degree of sacrifice in order to do it, right? Um, so I think you're absolutely right uh, about that. Okay. Other thoughts, other questions, or comments before we go on? Okay. All right, so I, I, because I want to keep it on one page, I just have the uh, English translation of the text from the Talmud. It's Bava Metzia 84a, uh, for those who are playing along at home. But uh, um, if you uh, want to uh, um, look at the Hebrew of it uh, at some point, I encourage you to do so. Um, uh, there are a couple places, and I'll try to point those out, where the Hebrew is um, is somewhat interesting, or the Aramaic, I should say, is somewhat interesting and, and ambiguous. Um, but nevertheless, it, it, you know, uh, like a lot of agotic stories in the in the Talmud, um, a, a, a good English translation um, uh, shouldn't, you know, wipe away uh, a lot of the nuance of of the story. So we should be able to still um, capture what it's saying, even if we don't get all of the nuances of the original language. Okay, so we're going to look at two rabbis. Uh, one is Rabbi Yochanan, and the other is Reish Lakish. Um, and uh, these are, so in uh, 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 Talmudic history, um, just a little, go, just to take a quick step back into Jewish history, um, uh, the, the Talmud is comprised of two texts. Um, one is the, called the Mishnah, and the other is called the Gemara. Um, the Mishnah was um, uh, composed um, around the year 200 of the Common Era in the land of Israel, um, and that was during a time when most of the uh, world Jewish population lived in the land of Israel, um, uh, and the land of Israel at the time um, was under Roman occupation, was under Roman rule. Um, and uh, by the time of the composing of the Mishnah, um, there, there, there had been um, uh, several unsuccessful um, rebellions, uh, Jewish rebellions against Rome, um, which had caused um, uh, uh, more Jewish, first of all, uh, a diminishment of the Jewish population because uh, Rome did not uh, deal so peacefully with the rebels, uh, but uh, but also uh, a, a split in the Jewish population. There, uh, you know, there are places where that Rome forbade Jews from living um, after certain rebellions. Jerusalem among them, uh, and uh, and so there was uh, um, uh, a, a more substantial Jewish exile diaspora um, uh, around the time of the composing of the Mishnah um, that didn't exist before. And so you start uh, what starts to grow are two major centers of the. Jewish world, right? Instead of having one major center, which was, you know, the land of Israel or Jerusalem, um, which was true uh, from the time of the uh, um, 
end of the Babylonian captivity around the year 530 um, uh, until um, until basically the, the, the end of the Bar Kokhba rebellion, the Hadrianic persecutions uh, in the mid-2nd century CE, um, to having really two centers of uh, Jewish life, one in the land of Israel and one in Babylonia. Um, it's very much in some ways parallel to what you have today, where you have two major centers of uh, uh, the Jewish world today in the United States and in Israel, uh, both of which have roughly equal size at the moment Jewish populations. Um, uh, so, uh, so what ended up after the composing of the Mishnah, um, you had uh, two uh, uh, populations of rabbinic uh, groups um, studying, interpreting, tr- striving to live by the Mishnah, one in uh, what was then called Palestine and the other in uh, Babylonia. Um, and uh, uh, what develops from that is um, uh, uh, two Gemaras. Uh, Gemara is a, um, um, a tradition of interpreting and debating the meaning of the Mishnah. Okay? Uh, one Gemara uh, that was composed or in the process of composition in the land of Israel. Um, and we have that Gemara today. So when I say that the Talmud is the Mishnah and the Gemara, there's actually two Talmuds. There's one Talmud um, that is the Mishnah and, and uh, the Gemara of the land of Israel. The Pal- so sometimes it's called the Palestinian Talmud, or sometimes it's called the Jerusalem Talmud. In Hebrew, it's usually just referred to as the Talmud Yerushalmi, which means the Jerusalem Talmud. But often you'll see it referred to as the Palestinian Talmud. Um, that's not a political statement. That's just what people call it. Uh, and uh, and uh, the other uh, uh, that was composed or finished later in Babylonia, uh, that, uh, and, and that's the more commonly studied Talmud um, for a handful of reasons called the Babylonian Talmud. Now these were written in what? What were they written on? What kind of truth? Oh, uh, um, that's a good question. I'm not positive the how, answer. How, how do we know? I mean, how do we know what these were? How were they passed on through the ages? It was. They're probably written on, you know, papyrus, that sort of paper. And that was passed on until they got the printing presses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so somebody, some, somebody kept them. Yeah, uh, they, you know, they, I mean, they were regularly studied, right? So, I mean, these are. This is unlike unlike the uh, the you know, it, it's very hard to date unless you're a traditional Jew who believes it was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, it's very hard to date the the composition of the Bible. Um, because the oldest known record we have of the of the finished Bible is, you know, eleventh century, tenth century, something like that. Um, the Talmud is is not the same. Even though we don't have uh, completed editions, you know, ha- manuscripts of the Talmud, um uh, uh uh, as early as we believe it was completed, um, there uh, th- there's a sort of a, um, there are many outside texts, um, you know, legal texts, uh, response to literature, and things like that 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 clearly indicate um, a, a, an agreed upon or more or less agreed upon redacted text of the Talmud as early as probably the 6th century, as late probably as the 6th century of the Common Era. Um, I don't think we have any manuscripts that are that old, but we have some pretty old manuscripts. Um, so, um, and we but probably, I have to go back and look at this, so I'm about to make a statement that may not be true, but my suspicion is um, the we probably have older manuscripts of Talmud than we have of completed editions of the Bible. Um, or even of the Torah itself. Um, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, they would predate the Talmud, wouldn't they? The Dead Sea Scrolls definitely predate the Talmud. The Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls, um, they stretch over the course of a, of, of a century or so, but, the, um, but they're roughly half a century to a century earlier than the Mishnah. Um, so they're actually not that much older than the Talmud in the span of Jewish history. But um, anyway, I uh, so uh, so yeah. I mean, I don't. I, I'll have to look up the answer specifically to the question. But um, um, but anyway, so okay. So there are two two Talmuds that were written. With, there are two rabbinic classes, two rabbinic traditions that that had regular interactions with each other. I mean, it's not like they were like two radically different traditions, but they um, one in Palestine and one in Babylonia. Um, and so um, uh, so the rabbis that we're going to be looking at now are not rabbis of the Mishnaic period, which who are known as Tanas, 
um, and that's going to be important in a minute. Um, uh, uh, these are rabbis of the period after the completion of the Mishnah who are known as Amoras, Amoraim. Um, uh, okay, and these are Amoraim of Eretz Israel, Amoraim of the land of Israel, Palestine. Okay, one is named Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan is, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, he's he he uh, sort of let, let's call it um, in today's terms, he was FFB. He was from from birth, right? In other words, he grew up in uh, in um, he grew up in uh, in the rabbinic community he you know um, was uh, if I'm not mistaken the scion of uh, of scholars he was pedigreed um, you know he um, he was known for a couple of things he was known for his uh, for his physical beauty um, and he was known for his uh, for his um, uh, legal erudition the other rabbi we're going to be talking about is a, uh, a, a person who's known in rabbinic literature as Reish Lakish, uh, sometimes called Shimon ben Lakish. Um, uh, and there's debate about, you know, uh, uh, Reish Lakish means like, uh, uh, like the, the uh, first of all, Reish can be a, an acronym for Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. Um, it can also, uh, Reish in Aramaic is like the head of something, like Rosh, right? The master. Um, so that it's, it could be that kind of nickname too. Um, uh, we don't, there, there's, there's, in some ways based on the story, there's all sorts of different speculations about Reish Lakish, but, but you'll see from the story that he likely was not FFB. He was what uh, they would call in the parlance today a Baal Tshuva, uh, which means that, uh, you know, he, 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 at some point later in life, um, decided that Judaism was for him and became uh, and became observant then. Okay, um, and then eventually became one of the great rabbis of the of the Talmudic um, period. So one day, Rabbi Yochanan was bathing in the Jordan when Reish Lakish saw him and leapt into the Jordan after him. Uh, now, uh, what we'll see a little bit later is that um, uh, is that. So there's a couple of ways you can look at the, what we're about to see. The first is that there's a, uh, a sort of homoerotic component to it, and I think that that's true. Um, and what I'm and, and what I would argue, and you'll see this in the in the text of David and Jonathan, um, I don't think that the Jewish tradition um, had um, uh, as sharp a division as we might like to think, and as we have today, between um, erotic love and platonic love. Um, I think that they um, uh, uh, saw those as uh, very strongly, intimately related things, um, uh, that, uh, um, you know, uh, marriage was not, uh, as we saw with Rabbi Akiva and Rachel, was not meant to be strictly erotic, right? Um, And uh, and, uh, other kinds of friendships were not seen as, strictly platonic, right? There was, uh, maybe erotic is not the best word I can use for it, um, but it's, but, but it's, but it, it, it's, it's not, what? There, there's an aesthetic appreciation. There's an, aste- an aesthetic appreciation. <laughs> there's a, there's a sense of passion and, uh, uh, you know, and, and energetic connection. Um, uh, you know, the, the people were not just connected. I mean, there were obviously people who were connected purely on a, you know, emotional or on a, on an intellectual or social level, but there was meant to be a, a an emotional bond between friends that was, uh, that, that was, that was really strong. We might border on what we would call today erotic love. Um, and I think that that's what, you know, uh, I had no problem with the text of David and Jonathan being, um, you know, a, a gay allegory. Um, but I think that it's, it's probably not the proper read of that text. Um, when it says, as you'll talk about next week, when it says, you know, the love, David's love for Jonathan was stronger than the love of women. Um, I'm not sure what he's saying there is, I, I would, you know, I'd rather be sleeping with you than with women. I think what he's saying there is, um, you know, that there's, there's a strength to my love and a depth to my love that, um, uh, that, you know, that, that, uh, that, um, is not necessarily overshadowed by my romantic entanglements, right? Um, and there may be a romantic dimension to their love, but I don't think that that means that they slept together. Maybe it doesn't. Yeah. It's uh, like yeah. if you're a girl and you have a crush on somebody. Right, yeah, right. Except not. not they had a bromance. So yes. that's what we would say today, yes. a bromance. A um, <laughs> right? So, um, so that's one thing I want to say. The other thing that there's a, um, you know, we, we often talk about in our culture today, uh, you know, a really sharp division, but either you're gay or you're straight. Um, 
I think that uh, um, that that Kinsey really blew that um, out of the water. Although we don't really talk about that today, where there's um, where sexuality is really a continuum, um, and, and so I think that that the um, that ancient literature, you know, the Bible, the Talmud, and then if you look outside the Jewish tradition, Greek and Roman literature, um, blow that out of the water too, and they really recognize that um, that one was not necessarily, you know, a, I don't remember what the numbers are on the Kinsey scale, but one was not necessarily either a zero on the Kinsey scale or a 10 on the Kinsey scale, and there's nothing in between, right? Um, I think that they recognize that you could be a five, you could be a yeah, seven. I mean, you there was something that I think last weekend, um, on some, something on TV, you were saying that Kinsey um, like really blew stuff out of proportion mm-hmm. at the end because they were trying to get a lot of publicity, mm-hmm. and it really wasn't true yeah. even what, you know, what he said. Yeah. The, that, the last part, not the first part. Yeah, I think some of his methodology has been questioned. Yeah. But but not only that, just the way that he presented it, like right. he wrote a book or something. I mean, he wrote several books, but the last one was more just, you know... About it. Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't even think that. I have all the yeah. time. But anyway, but, but fair, so fair points, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Kinsey yeah. scholar, uh, but, <laughs> that, but, that, but that insight, right, that... Uh, that um, uh, that a, a person who is normally inclined toward heterosexuality can have um, uh, uh, longings uh, or attraction um, to people of the same sex, and that it's healthy and normal um, uh, is uh, is is something that I think the the um, the ancient texts sort of intuited, um, but uh, but but we sort of lost um, in in modernity. All right. So anyway, um, and you'll see that not only where you, so okay. So the other reason, uh, what I want to say that, and I also want to say what you'll see later, um, is that uh, um, Rachel Akish has a backstory that we don't really learn a lot about before the text starts, and uh, and and th- there's not a lot of unanimity of opinion about what the backstory is exactly, um, but. Suffice to say that the unanimity is that he um, did not have a savory backstory. Um, some say he was a gladiator. Some say he was a bandit. Some say he was a robber. Some say he was in the circus. Um, and the idea of being abandoned, actually, in, in um, rabbinic tradition is not just like you would rob people on the highway. Uh, bandits um, were um, were in some ways more like uh, like extremist terrorists uh, in uh, in ancient Palestine. Um, so when Rabbi Yochanan was bathing in the Jordan, Rachel Akish saw him and leapt into the Jordan after him. Maybe there's some sort of like erotic statement there, or maybe he's trying to rob him. Right? Um, we don't know. Said Rabbi Yochanan to him, "Your strength should be for the Torah." Right, so Rabbi Akish, this like big burly gladiator, jumps in after him. Right, and Rabbi Yochanan, unfazed, says, "You're a strong guy. Don't rob me. Come and study Torah with me." Right. Rabbi Akish says, "Your beauty," he replied, "should be for women." Right. Um, right. So, in other words, um, Rabbi Yochanan says, "Rabbi Akish, you're wasting your life." Right, um, uh, because uh, uh, because you have all the strength and you could put it toward good use. And Rachel Akish says to Rabbi Yochanan, um, you're wasting your life. You're like a beautiful guy, right? You could, you know, you could be a, a real ladies' man out there, right? And you're sitting in the study hall all day. Now, there's another possible way you could read that, which is, um, you know, the, you know, the, the, if you read between the lines, if you wanted to read it this way, that Rabbi, Yo- that, um, Rabbi Yochanan was bathing in the Jordan, you know, and, and uh, he saw this, like, burly guy, and Rabbi Yochanan says, hey, come here, big boy, right? And, uh, um, and, uh, um, and he says, oh, look how strong you are, right? And, uh, and Rachel Lakish, you know, and this is, you know, like, you know, we're having this, you know, homosexual entanglement, right? But you're so beautiful, you should, uh, you should go after women because they might like you too. Um, that's another way of reading it. Uh, I'm not sure if that's how I would read it, but that's another way of reading it. If you will repent, said he, right? If uh, re- this is Rabbi Yochanan talking, if you will repent, um, meaning if you uh, um, Lay aside your uh, your wicked ways, your banditry, all that, uh, and turn to a life of uh, of observant Judaism and Torah study. I will give you my sister in marriage, who is more beautiful than I. He undertook so that was apparently a compelling uh, thing, right? So uh, Rach Lockey says, "Well, you know, you're a pretty handsome guy. If your sister is more beautiful than you are, okay, all right, I'll give it a shot, right?" Um, so he undertook to repent. Then he wished to return and collect his weapons, but could not. 
Um, and the commentaries usually say that the could not is so strong was his repentance, he couldn't bring himself to pick up his sword again. Um, that, by the way, is um, um, sort of unrelated to what we're talking about in terms of friendship, but uh, in terms of um, you know uh, Jewish ethics with regard to uh, uh, violence and, um, and and weapons. Um, there's a there's a strength to that statement, right? That somebody who is um, uh, uh, commi- uh, Jewishly committed. Um, uh, not only has no need for weapons, um, but the pull of uh, living a committed Jewish life is so strong um, that one can't that, that the two are antithetical, right? And so you know, so it's 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 not a definitive answer. It's not a law, but it's something to add to the conversation when Jews talk about things like gun control. I think. Um, subsequently, Rabbi Yochanan taught him Bible and Mishnah and made him into a great man. Okay, so uh, one other thing I want to point out here is that the you know the undertaking to repent happens before the study of Bible and Mishnah. Um, so you know th- there's there's a couple of things that that um, again sort of unrelated to what we're talking about, but um, you know the 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 desire to become um, more committed Jewishly, the commitment itself precedes the learning, right? So you can be considered a Baal Tshuva, you can be considered somebody who's, who's uh, um, uh, beginning the process of turning back toward God uh, and, and Judaism um, without really knowing anything yet, right? Um, I think that that's um, important for rabbis to keep in mind as we, re- as we um, relate to people who um, may not be extremely learned um, but yet have sincere desire to, uh, to, to be engaged and committed to Jewish life. I think it's something that um, Jewish uh, lay people um, should uh, should keep in mind um, when you know we think of things about like you know who's who gets to be in who gets to be out in com- of our community and and how we relate to various people or elements in the community and it's something uh, a compelling piece to me um, as uh, in thinking about um, conversion to Judaism too um, that um, you know a lot of emphasis in the process of conversion gets put on you know how much knowledge can we pour into a potential convert's head before we allow them to convert, and um, and I think that that's sort of inverted. I think that um, uh, that a, a commitment really precedes the knowledge, and and uh, and, uh, and on some level, um, I'm very comfortable converting somebody who can demonstrate a sincere commitment, even if they're not uh, especially knowledgeable, and even if they haven't been learning for uh, a particular amount of time. Because um, if they have the commitment, then the learning will come. Right. Mm-hmm. right exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. But it goes back to my seven Ishmael. It's the right. same thing. It's the same thing, right? Exactly, right? There's, if everybody knows what Nancy's talking about, that the um, Jewish people at Mount Sinai, um, and, you know, God says, "Will you accept this Torah uh, before the Torah is even given?" Right? And the Midrash says, "All the other nations said, well, what's in it first? But the Jewish people said, seven Ishmael. We're gonna, we'll, we'll follow it, and then we'll learn it." Right? Um, okay. Now, one day. So this is after. So. Back to our themes and back to our topic, what you have here is another instance, another clear example of um, friendship, of, 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 a, of a strong dimension of friendship being the desire to, uh, to um, refine the other. Or to, uh, um, not necessarily the desire to refine the other, but uh, um, uh, that, ref- that refinement is a strong feature of friendship. Right, and through the context of friendship, we can become better people. We can also become worse people, but the ideal is that we become better people through friendship. Right, and so through this relationship, uh, Reish Lakish becomes a great man. If it weren't for this relationship, Reish Lakish wouldn't have become a great man. Um, now that may seem one-sided, so we're gonna we're gonna um, uh, look a little bit deeper. Now. One day there was a dispute in the schoolhouse, in, in the Beit Midrash, the study hall, with respect to the following. A sword, knife, dagger, spear, handsaw, and scythe. Um, at what stage of their manufacture can they become unclean? The answer is when their manufacture is finished. Okay, so uh, the background to this, for those who uh, may not know, is that the Jewish tradition um, has... Uh, is stemming from the Bible, has a uh, um, uh, very keen interest in identifying um, uh, 
not only what is pure and impure, but what might be susceptible to becoming pure and impure, um, because that has all sorts of ramifications for worship in the temple. Now, this is all purely academic by the time uh, Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish are studying it, but nevertheless, it's still a, main fee- a, a, a very common discussion in the Talmud. There's all sorts of debate about why that might be. It could be that the uh, rabbis of the Talmud thought that they were um, preserving um, uh, these traditions for the eventual rebuilding of the temple. Um, remember, the temple was destroyed about two centuries or so before Rabbi Yochanan Reish Lakish uh, lived. Um, and there are other arguments that it was sort of purely academic or intellectual on their part that it was meant to sort of uh, practice the process of uh, Jewish legal thinking. Um, but nevertheless, they're debating um, uh, whether these items, ha- um, uh, or at what point in uh, uh, in their manufacture can they become unclean? And uh, the answer is when their manufacture is finished, right? Um, uh, and only, it turns out, uh, com- fully completed uh, items, articles, vessels, that sort of thing, can become susceptible to impurity. Um there is, by the way, another very famous um, story in the Talmud that hinges on a debate over whether something is uh, susceptible to impurity or not. Anybody know what, what I'm talking about? Ben? Oh, your mouth is full, so I'll, I'll answer for you. Uh, is uh, uh, this uh, story known as Tanur Shel Achnai, the oven of Achnai, um, uh, in which... Um, all of the sages and Rabbi Eliezer um, are debating about whether an oven, a particular kind of oven, is susceptible to impurity. Uh, and uh, um, Rabbi Eliezer, if, I'm, if memory serves, um, says that uh, it is uh, not susceptible to impurity, and the, all the sages say that it is susceptible to impurity. Rabbi Eliezer is so convinced of his rightness that he calls forth all of these miracles to prove that he's correct. Um, and uh, and uh, eventually the um, response of the sages is loba uh, shamayimhi, right? Uh, that uh, only the sages get to debate uh, and determine what is or is not Jewish law. God doesn't get to decide anymore. Um, uh, that's a little bit neither here nor there. Okay, so the um, so the uh, so the debate here is over when is uh, uh, when these become unclean, uh, and only finished objects can become unclean. So the question is then, um, what counts as a finished weapon? Right, Rabbi Yochanan says when they are tempered in a furnace. Right, in other words, um, uh, when they're forged, um, that at that point they're susceptible, they're susceptible to impurity. Um, Reish Lakish, on the other hand, says when they have been furbished in water, which is, I understand, the, the making of weaponry. I'm not an expert in it, but I'm pretty sure the furbishing in water comes after the forging in the fire. Um, so it's a later point um, in, the, in, in, in the development. Said he to him, said Rabbi Yochanan back to Reish Lakish, a bandit understands banditry. Right? In other words, you would know, wouldn't you? Right. Um, so, in other words, they're having this heated halachic debate, this heated legal debate. Right. And in the midst of this passionate conversation, Rabbi Yochanan um, throws the hand grenade. Right. He he goes for the nuclear option. Right. He's he's um, you know, Reish Lakish makes a very compelling argument, and Rabbi Yochanan uh, takes a you know uh, um, uh, takes a blow below the belt. Right and says, "Hey, you would know about weapons. Remember that time before you became a a convert, before you became a Torah scholar, that you were a bandit. Now, there is um, a very it's um, uh, almost a direct law from the Torah. Uh, it doesn't require much rabbinic interpretation. Um, uh, 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 the law from the Torah says uh, that one may not oppress a ger. One may not oppress a stranger. Uh, and uh, the rabbinic interpretation of that, um, in addition to various ways that, other ways that one could oppress a stranger, is to not uh, oppress a stranger or convert by means of words. And one of the uh, core examples of that is to remind a convert of the time before they were not Jewish. Say like, hey, remember when you used to be an idolater and did all those sins, right? You're not supposed to do that. Um, so Rabbi Yochanan is, you know, this is not only like hurt, emotionally hurtful, um, but is, uh, is a sin, a real sin. Said he to him, and wherewith have you benefited me? 
There, as a robber, I was called master, and here I am called master, right? In other words, so Rabbi Yochanan, you know, hits below the belt, and Reish Lakish swings back and says, you know, a lot of good you did me, right? Um, as, uh, as, as uh, um, you know, uh, life was pretty good for me back then, right? I was, I was like the king of the robbers. I was the king of the bandits. Everybody called me master, right? I was Reish Lakish. I was the master Lakish, right? Here I'm called master too. Okay, great, but like I... W- would have been just as fine back then. So in other words, so Rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan says, um, you know, you're not all that better now than you were then, right? And Reish Lachie says, um, yeah, okay, so you, you know, you're a failure then, right? Um, so they, they're, you know, the gloves are off between Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lachish. So, uh, so Reish Lachish says, you know, how, what good have you done me? And Rabbi Yochanan says, by bringing you under the wings of the Shechina, he retorted, right? So I have benefited you, right? Okay, you were called master then, you're called master now. This seems like you, you know, made a lateral move. Um, but I actually have uh, elevated you. Right? You were a master then, but you were a master of evil. It's like in Star Wars, right? Only a master of evil, Darth, um, right? Um, you were a master then, but you were a master of evil. And now you're a master, but you're under the wings of the divine presence. Rabbi Yochanan therefore felt himself deeply hurt. Right, Rabbi Yochanan, the person who initiated the insults, is there uh, is then deeply hurt by the uh, implication on Rish Lakish's part um, that that you know the friendship was really for naught. Right, that uh, that that he hasn't really um, uh, um, helped him in any way in his life through their friendship. And as a result of Rabbi Yochanan feeling hurt, Rish Lakish fell ill. Um, there are other texts in the Talmud that uh, that 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 hint at um, uh, a strong spiritual power that Rabbi Yochanan had for uh, for healing and for uh, causing uh, um, folks to fall ill. So this is another example of that. Um, and so it could be that Rabbi Yochanan was so spiritually attuned that you know. Um, uh, when he's hurt, God is hurt, and God you know, strikes out at his enemies. It could be Rabbi Yochanan has a um, has a, has a sort of like you know uh, power of his own. Anyway, so he he's hurt by what Reish Lakish says, and then as a result, Reish Lakish falls ill. Rabbi Yochanan's sister, the wife of Reish Lakish, came and wept before him. Forgive him for the sake of my son, she pleaded. He replied, "Leave thy fatherless children; I will preserve them alive." In other words, um, she comes to him and says, like, okay, you guys just, you need to make up. Like, this, you, he, he's going to die. He's sick because of this fight. Um, you need to make up. And Rabbi Yochanan says, no, I'm not going to make up with him. And even if he dies, it's not a big deal because God says, you know, I'll take care of orphans. Right? Um, and then she says, for the sake of my widowhood then, right? So like, okay, forget about my children, right? Your nieces and nephews, whatever. Don't worry about them. But what about me? I'm your sister. Like, he's going to leave me a widow if he dies. And Rabbi Yochanan, so wrapped up in this feud, says, uh, points to the same verse, let thy widows trust in me. Uh, the me should be capitalized there, right? Um, so in other words, right? God will take care of orphans and God will take care of widows. Um, now, anybody who um, you know reads that, that's a nice passage you could point to. But the thrust of the Bible, of course, <laughs> is that um, we human beings have responsibility to take care of widows and orphans. But so wrapped up in this feud is is Rabbi Yochanan that uh, that 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 he says um, you know to heck with Reish Lakish, right? So Reish Lakish died, and Rabbi Yochanan was plunged into deep grief. Um, so, you know, the, uh, now there are all sorts of ways, you, can read, you know, maybe it's as a result of their feud. I, you know, it, it could be right. Um, but, but think about it this way, right. Um, about the, and this is important as we, you know, uh, approach Elul and, um, uh, begin Elul in the high holiday season, you know, such a, uh, um, priority is, is put on the notion of, uh, repentance and, and forgiveness, um, Look what happens in the story as a result of, um, hey, thank you for breakfast, by the way. Um, look what happens in the story as a result of, um, of this unresolved conflict and this unresolved tension, right? Um, Rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan's sister begs him to uh, make up with Reish Lakish. Um, and in some ways, to, it requires Rabbi Yochanan to apologize to Reish Lakish because the, you know, it's not like the fight was enti- at least entirely Reish Lakish's fault. Um, and to forgive 
Reish Lakish for the injury, um, and he doesn't do it. Reish Lakish dies. He doesn't get any more chances to do it, right? And that's one of the that's one of the messages of of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, right? We we do this prayer Unetane Tokef, right? Who will live? Who will die in the coming year? And um, and and one of the messages of that is, uh, you know, we don't have unlimited time. Right? And we don't necessarily, any of us, know when the end of our time is going to be or when the end of our friend's time is going to be. And if you don't uh, forgive or ask forgiveness today, you may not have another opportunity. And then you may be haunted by the fact that you don't have another opportunity. And that's precisely what happens here. Rish Lakish dies, and Rabbi Yochanan was plunged into deep grief. Well, they also like me, mm-hmm. but you really need to be careful sometimes what you say. You need to think about it a little bit ahead of time. And because uh, when you violate, not violate, when you terminate, say, really cutting thing, uh, it can have repercussions. That's right. And I think, and I think um, uh, especially in the context of um, serious relationships. Right, because it's usually in that kind of relationship where you know uh, the thing to say that's going to hurt the other person the most. Right, you have that's like you that's where you have the most ammunition. I mean, I see it in 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 uh, marriages all the time. You know, the the, the fights that are up in in um, in right. You like you hold on to that that injury or that grief for so long, and you're like you're just saving that one. Right, like you know how to you know, you know what's going to hurt them the most. So and that's and that's definitely the case here. Like they've been together for so long, they you know that uh, and, and and they know each other's stories so much um, that that they know what's going to hurt the other. Right? What's going to hurt Reish Lakish the most is the reminder that he used to be abandoned. What's going to hurt Rabbi Yochanan the most is the is the uh, um, is the uh, assertion that he actually has no um, um, persuasive religious power. What started this? It doesn't say what started it. Why did it just So what looks what looks like happened is they got into a heated debate over over um, over a piece of Jewish law. They were studying together, right? Look at this. Um, look at this text uh, on in your other sheet, Babylonian Talmudani seven a. What is the meaning of the verse? Iron sharpens iron. Just as with this iron, one sharpens another. So also two sages sharpen each other in halacha. Right, so there's a there's there's um, something to learn from that, which is uh, you know in, in relationship as we talked about before that one of the goals um, of uh, of relationship in Judaism is to refine each other, but there's a danger to that, right? As iron sharpens, when what happens when iron sharpens iron? Someone gets cut. Someone gets get cut and sparks fly, right? So you got to be careful, or else you might you know there might be a fire. Right, and that's and and that happens. I mean, I see it, you know, um, all the time. In uh, when you know the, the the traditional method of Jewish study is chavruta study, right? I see it all the time, where like you know, um, where the the conversation moves from a substantive disagreement about the issue um, to, um, to to personal uh, um, invective. It happens in the political realm all the time, right? I mean, you see it, I see it with this Iran debate, right? Um, right? You know, where, where it's no longer about, you know, what are the pros and cons of the agreement? You know, what are the, what are the uh, possibilities, you know, uh, in this way or that way, right? What it's about now is um, who is... Um, uh, who is a closeted anti-Semite or not so closeted anti-Semite, and who is a warmonger or a closeted warmonger? Right. I mean, that's the sort of like the the um, the debate here, right? Um, who is a Nazi appeaser and who's you know got their finger on the trigger, right? Um, so that and it happens in friendships and relationships, right? Um, you know, uh, <laughs> any of you who are married know that, like, uh, you know, a, a discussion, uh, a debate about, you know, what restaurant to go to, right, can very quickly turn into, you know, um, into World War Three with, you know, uh, so, um, so that's, I think that's what happens here. And we had um, it just last night. Right, right. I mean, it's, it's so, it's so common, right? Um, and, and that's the frailty of people. Is this desire to win or this desire to, right. to be right? Right. Uh, right. So somebody has to compromise. Somebody has to give in. Or she just won't be friends anymore. Won't be married anymore. So 
Well, yeah. So, so that's that was that was advice that I got. Um, in it, we did Adir and I did premarital counseling with my rabbi uh, Brad Artson, and one of the pieces of advice he gave me is that there there may come a time where you're going to have to ask yourself, uh, what am I more interested in? Being right or staying married, right? And uh, and you get with a friend, right? Am I more interested in winning this argument, or am I in, more interested in staying friend? Um, you know, usually in the moment, our impulse is to want to be right, right? Um, but if we reflected on it, um, our answer might be different than that, right? So, um, so here you have a, a clear example of right. They get heated in the debate, and and they lose track of. You know, what's more important here, to win the argument or to stay friends? That's a good point. Um, so, um, so did he actually really, I mean, is this a true, well, we don't know. Uh, we don't know if it's a true story or because not. Because it hasn't, um, uh, oh, Raish Lakish, I mean, he's, there's lots of things, stories about him. Yeah, him. yeah, yeah. And so the fact that this is where he actually dies. Is well, yeah, but like the, the Talmud isn't chronological, okay, okay, so right? So, um, so this could be the end of his, I mean, he did no, die at some curious. point. Yeah, I um, and you know, like a lot, there, there, you know, a lot of the stories in the Talmud, uh, some of them are you know made up for effect, and some of them have a kernel of truth in it, right? right. So, um, some you know, there may be truth to the story. I don't know. Okay. But the amazing thing is, that this thing is written centuries and centuries ago, and here it is today. It's the same truth, right? Compressed yeah. one piece, one bit. And that's yeah. allow you know because of. Um, Talmud, I mean, it's human nature. Right. The human nature hasn't changed. Right, exactly. So whatever was said then could be real. Exactly. All right, so I, and I love this. The, I love this <laughs> last part. Was that the coda? Yeah. Yeah, I love the coda here. Okay, so said the rabbis, "Who shall go to ease his mind? Let Rabbi Elazar ben Pedat go, whose teachings are well reviewed." Um, and that's a place where the Hebrew is sort of interesting. I, I wasn't sure, and I, 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 uh, I even consulted with a handful of people, and no one was really sure how to read it. It was, um, it was Mechadron uh, Shematete. Um, so Mechadron is, uh, um, like, Chadar uh, is, uh, is the Aramaic of the Hebrew Chazar, which means uh, to, uh, to return. Um, and usually the idea of study in... Um, in the Talmudic tradition is to do chazara, right? To keep on repeat, you know, go over it again and again. Um, so it could be that he's just like, you know, um, he, he, he studies a lot, or it could mean that his teachings are so um, meaningful that people study them a lot. Uh, the, I, 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 because there's no point in reinventing the wheel, um, most, for the most part, this translation is, um, the translation of the Sansino, which is an early 20th century, I think, or late 19th century British translation of the Talmud. Um, and, um, and the translation there was, um, uh, his disquisitions were subtle. So, you know, um, there you go. So he went and sat before him. And on every dictum uttered by Rabbi Yochanan, he observed, there is a brighta which supports you. Um, and remember I said before that there are, you know, sort of two uh, generations, largely speaking, of uh, rabbis of the Talmud. The first are called Tanas, the second are called Amoras. Um, Tanas um, are, the, uh, are the generation before the Mishnah. Um, and a brighta is a statement by a Tana, um, a Tanaitic rabbi, that didn't end up making it, for whatever reason, into the Mishnah. Um, but is often used in Talmudic discourse um, either to support a position um, or to uh, raise an argument against a position. Um, and so, uh, so uh, Rabbi Elazar says to Rabbi Yochanan, there's a brighta which supports you to every uh, dictum uttered by Rabbi Yochanan. Are you as the son of Lakisha, he complained? When I stated a law, the son of Lakisha used to raise 24 objections to which I gave 24 answers, which consequently led to a fuller comprehension of the law. Whilst you say, a brighta has been taught which supports you. Do I not know myself that my dicta are right? <laughs> I love that, right? So, so you hear what's going on here, right? So uh, Rabbi Yochanan is saying, um, you know, you're not, I, I, I'm longing, I wish um, I still had Rish Lakish around. 
Because when we studied together, when Rish Lakish and I studied together, I would say something, and Rish Lakish would make 24 arguments against it, and I would have to respond to each of those 24 arguments to prove my point uh, correctly. And in so doing, it, it enabled me to refine my position better, right? And uh, so he's saying, it, I think this may be uh, characteristically, you know, um, uh, egotistical kind of way, like I refined my understanding, um, my comprehension became more full, uh, which is, a, I think, a, 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 an egotistical way of saying um, uh, um, my, my understanding became more subtle, my understanding was influenced by the, uh, by the antithesis across the table, right? There's a sense of thesis plus antithesis equals synthesis, right? So I got a more synthetic view of the, of the, of the law. But anyway, whatever. Um, and so, but I love this, right, because that, that speaks to Rabbi Yochanan's character, right? So Rabbi Elazar is saying, you know, here's something that supports you. Like, like look at this. And Rabbi Yochanan says, like, I know I'm right, right? You don't, I don't need you to tell me I'm right. I know I'm right. What I need you to do is to raise the objections to my right answers so that I can respond to them to, uh, to better construct my argument for my being right. Um, thus he went on, rending his garments and weeping, Where are you, O son of Lakisha? Where are you, O son of Lakisha? And he cried thus until his mind was turned. And Rashi the classic uh, uh, 11th century French commentator says his mind was turned means he went crazy. I mean, like, he, he just, he, he couldn't take it anymore. Thereupon the rabbis prayed for him and he died. So they prayed for him to die, I assume, and he died. Um, so, um, uh, so what happens here? What's, what's, uh, how do you read this uh, conclusion of the story? I mean, when you were just talking, I mean, he went crazy because he had, you know, he wanted to apologize and he couldn't do that, and then all these other things, you know, he really missed his friend, and so he went crazy, and when they prayed, you know, they said, you know, we leave him, we leave and him how often, of his... Right. How often whatever. we wish for the good old days or for... Or yeah, just for somebody who was always right. right. He made a horrible mistake that couldn't be fixed. Right, right. exactly. Well, there was right. such a void exactly. in his life that couldn't be filled. No one else could fill that void. And that right. was part of it, too, I think. Right. You know, so, so I think... Uh, a lot of these are, are really important uh, answers. I mean, in, in looking at um, our uh, sheet of, um, of, of statements about friendship in, the, in, in Jewish tradition, you see some of this playing out, right? So the, the, um, the danger of dropping an old friend, yeah. right? Um, and being, you know, so cavalier in our relationships. So saying, you know, my rightness takes priority over the friendship itself, the relationship itself, is a um, is is an important thing. Right, one cannot acquire a friend except by great effort. Um, you know, which so you know you realize that sometimes only after that good friend is gone. Um, that, uh, that that getting another friend like that old friend um, is not an easy task. Um, the other um, is that you know, despite Rabbi Yochanan's um, you know clear um, certainty of his own correctness. Um, and that's often true of, of a lot of us, even if we're, you know, particularly humble people. You know, it, we, we need the tension of those relationships. So sometimes, you know, the, the, um, the tendency is, you know, to, uh, um, to prioritize winning over the relationship. But, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, think about what happens in our political discourse, um, uh, in, in our study and in, in everything, um, you know, the, the left needs the right, right? And, uh, and vice versa. Uh, uh, because, um, without having, you know, if you, if you only had a government made of liberals or you only had a government made of conservatives, um, you would very easily, um, uh, get, uh, to, to, um, I think, a, a really uh, horrific outcomes. Um, you need, uh, the, you need the presence of an other. You need the presence of an opposing view in order to um, uh, sharpen and refine your own views because it could be um, that you end up making a more compelling argument um, uh, after having heard the arguments from the other side. And you need to hear the arguments from the other side in order to make that kind of argument. It could be that you temper your argument based on hearing thoughts from the other side. It may mean that you compromise and you requires compromise of the other side. Maybe that there are some things that you'll just never come to agreement on, and there'll just be things that you never come to an agreement on. Uh, but uh, but but um, 
a society is diminished unless there are uh, unless there's a a, a real uh, respectful conversation happening um, a, across poles in the political spectrum. A person's life is diminished um, if they don't have the presence of an other or others in their life of opposing views, of opposing perspectives, opposing point of views with whom they have they engage in uh, perpetual respectful conversation. Uh, um, that's true of friendships, and it's true of uh, of romantic romantic relationships uh, as well. And, and I think that that's really borne out uh, by the story of Rabbi Yochanan and, and Reish Lakish, and it's borne out in um, the Jewish tradition's view of what a healthy relationship is, right? That, you know, there's danger, of course, from iron sharpening iron, uh, but nevertheless, uh, the, there's, there's a real power and truth and necessity in our relationships uh, for iron to sharpen iron, uh, for, for us to allow ourselves to be refined uh, by the uh, people with whom we're friends or in romantic relationships, and for us to offer as um, as gently and as respectfully as we can uh, the the invitation for the other person to be refined through us and through our relationship. That doesn't mean that you can bludgeon them with it. It doesn't mean that you can hold them hostage, you know, accept my view or else. Um, but it does mean that the nature of a healthy relationship is, is one in which both sides uh, agree that, um, that, that we're going to help each other grow to be better people. Thank you.